everyone. Uh, welcome to a special episode of Opinion Science. Things are very much more <laughs> laid back in these best of episodes. Um, you know, I have a conflicted relationship with these best of episodes of this show. I actually really love listening to best ofs of other podcasts, so that's why I do it. I, I also think that um, people who come to the show, you know, who are checking things out, do make use of the best of. So if you're brand new, hello, hi, I'm, <laughs> I'm waving to you. You can't see it, but I'm waving to you. Uh Thanks for checking us out, and uh, hopefully this showcases some of the ways in which this podcast tries to talk about the psychology of where opinions come from, how they change, what we do with them, uh, all those sorts of things. Um, if you're listening uh, just to you know reminisce and get nostalgic for 2022, you welcome back. <laughs> Thank also thanks for being here. I, I really appreciate this time of year to to look back at 2022 and think about what the podcast did, what it could do better next year, um, all, all those sorts of questions. So thanks for reminiscing here with me. I guess I should backtrack and just uh, introduce myself. <laughs> I'm Andy Luttrell. I'm the host of Opinion Science. I'm a social psychologist, uh, and I study the the psychology of what we call attitudes or what we can call opinions, and it's just sort of the the way we look to the world and think about what we like, what we dislike, what we agree with, what we disagree with. Um, and that includes questions about where our moral values come from, where our product allegiances in the, in the marketplace come from, and, and how we think about other people, uh, the people with whom we relate very closely and people who we only think about and, and think more abstractly about our relationship with them. So all, all of those kinds of questions are, are really compelling to me. And so this is a podcast that bridges, I hope, lots of different disciplines. My home discipline of psychology with political science and communication and sociology, uh, marketing, business, um, alongside people on the ground doing work that's related to opinions and persuasion and communication. So it all circles around a similar thing, but, you know, I, I like to explore. And so uh, this podcast is a chance to do that. This was a, a big year. Uh, 2022 was a you know curious and interesting year all around. Um, but but uh, I want to highlight a few things for for the podcast. One is that at the very beginning of this year, uh, the podcast "You Are Not So Smart" featured an episode of Opinion Science. It was a very cool thing. I have gotten to know um, the the host of "You Are Not So Smart," David McCraney. Um, we, we sort of dabble in similar areas. He just came out with a really great book called um, How Minds Change, which you sh if you haven't gotten it, you should definitely check that out. Um, and his podcast has been going strong for many years, talking about behavioral science and psychology, cognitive biases, those sorts of things. Um, and so I, I sort of pitched him one of the times that I, I was talking to him, you know, if he would be interested in airing an episode of Opinion Science that I thought was kind of almost ready-made for the audience that really loves his show. If you might remember in 2021, uh, I produced an episode of this show called To Persuade is Human about uh, an AI system that uh, IBM had created to debate people, uh, an AI computer system that is able to hold its own against champion human debaters, raising ethical questions about, you know, what is persuasion? Can a computer really pull off persuasion? Or is that something that only is distinctly human? Um, anyhow, I, I talked to a bunch of cool people for that episode of the show, uh, including computer engineers and um, social scientists, writers, etc. Uh, 
and uh, David was kind enough to, to to play it on his show. And so if you if you have joined the opinion science feed from uh, originally hearing uh, about this on You Are Not So Smart, welcome. Uh, great to have you. And yeah, that was a really great way to start the year and really kind of have some momentum going. Another thing that made 2022 uh, unique for this podcast was the summer was dedicated to a whole series on science communication. So about half the episodes this year or 2022, I'm recording this literally in 2023 on day three. So uh, I'm getting confused what year I'm supposed to be talking about. Um, so yeah, so about half of the episodes in 2022 were for, about uh, science communication. I'm going to talk about that more later on. Um, but still, there was a good 17 opinion science episodes. And so by the numbers, in total, 2022 on opinion science featured 30 distinct episodes and a total of just about 28 hours <laughs> of podcast listening, uh, which is incredible to me that that, that amount of stuff um, could come out of, of my basement. Literally, that's where I produce the show. Um, I don't really want to ramble on too much. I kind of, I, I do hate that. Um, and the whole notion of these best ofs are, you know, just sort of easy breezy. I'm kind of debriefing myself about the year and I'm bringing you along with me. But I have selected a handful of clips from 2022 that, that I'd like to share with you. Some of them are, as I've done in the past, snippets of the interviews that I've done with social scientists and communicators. But I, I also have a couple other things in the mix here as well. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe let's just jump in with kind of the classic bread and butter of this show. As I said, most of the time on this show, I'm talking with social scientists or communicators about their work and what it means for the psychology and general understanding of opinions and persuasion. And so I, I picked three episodes from this year that I just want to highlight briefly. The first is uh, an interview I did with Zoe Chance, who is a um, professor at the Yale School of Management. I think I got that right. She's in the marketing program there. Um, she released a book this year called Influence is Your Superpower. And um, yeah, I was I was super excited to, to talk to her. She was a very, <laughs> I had no idea, I'd never met her before, but she was a, a very pleasant person to talk to and, and super fun uh, as someone to keep in touch with after the fact. I believe her episode is the most downloaded episode from 2022, so let's start there. Um, in this clip, I talked to Zoe about how she built this course on influence for business students, essentially what became the book Influences Your Superpower. And I was curious because it's sort of it was sort of uh, on the edge. It was it was part behavioral science and part just sort of general practice of being a person in the world. And I wanted to get her take on how she balances those two sides of the equation. So here is a quick glimpse into my conversation with Zoe Chance in an episode that came out on January 17th, episode 54, Influence is Your Superpower. I've been working now for a long time myself, but for more than a decade with other people who are studying and practicing these things. So then so what I end up doing is I'll hear a piece of advice from somebody and then I'll workshop with, with students and we'll test it out and we'll see if it works. So we have this informal lab classroom situation that happens. Um, and and it's not just that granular techniques don't have a basis in research as much as I wish that they did. There's There's a lot. There's just lots of gaps as well. And it's also, though my philosophy of influence that I'm teaching is a path of self-development and it's you practicing tools and techniques and ideas and mindset shifts 
to become a more influential person, to become someone that people want to say yes to. And eventually on this path, when you get through the kludgy, uncomfortable clunkiness that feels inauthentic of, I'm using a strategy now, you you feel like it just doesn't feel right. But it's it's not like you're being manipulated, but it's like you're learning a second or a third language where you have to be thinking consciously and you're not just easily making friends with someone until you get more fluent in that language. And then as you get further down this path, you actually don't need to use very many of these skills when we're talking about interpersonal kinds of interactions. The most important thing is that they want to say yes to you. And then you have a collaborative conversation about how that might happen and whether it might work out. And if it's not now, maybe it's in the future and you become influenceable as you become influential. And you're never going to just press your wishes on other people and have them comply with you and become influential that way in the long run. But you become someone that people really want to collaborate with and they want to help and they're happy when you're happy. Like I write in the book, the penultimate chapter, where it summarizes a whole bunch of the strategies, ideas, techniques, and things in one story about a former student who changed history. And this was the hardest chapter to write because he also happened to become my husband. <laughs> but he's And the been... story was incredible, by the way. I, I meant to tell you that up top. That was probably my favorite part of the book was oh, the really? story where, yes, everything came together, but it was just this... Uh, I was almost like, how have I not heard about this <laughs> before? It seems like such a big it's story. It's a huge deal. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'll tell him and he'll be so happy. So the, and the, what the topic of this is, is he is on this journey of influence, planning, creating, and making happen the first ever presidential debates in the Arab world. And he's a social entrepreneur. So he is one of the many people I know and adore who have been down the path of practicing the techniques, studying influence, reading a ton, taking classes like mine, which is how we met, but ultimately becoming someone who is so inspiring and so delightful to be around that he literally has people shoving giant piles of money at him, just saying like, hey, we love your vision. Can we be on your team? And it's not like his life is suddenly easy. He works super hard still, but it's not like he's strategizing, oh, I will use this kind of ask in this situation and I'll handle resistance in this way in that situation. It's much more organic and it flows. So you will become almost effortlessly influential in the long run. It just takes effort to get there. It sort of connects to something I was going to ask in terms of the, again, the theme of the book is, uh, the title is Influences Your Superpowers. Uh, yes, I might be getting yes. a couple of the words wrong. Um, but uh, bold claim <laughs> to, to think of this as a superpower. And, and in the book, you write uh, that the psychology of influence is the secret to happiness, success, and saving the world. So again, <laughs> not, not shying away from, from some claims. But the the question is like, wh why is it this impactful, right? So we started by saying like, this class is in a business school. You might think of it as like a sales class, but really it's become more of an approach to living your life and being a person who has influence in the world. What does influence mean that makes it this sort of all encompassing characteristic that, that has these important outcomes? So yes, it's bold, but it's absolutely factual. There's no subjective dimension here. It is your superpower. <laughs> the reality is that 
just about everything that you want to do in life with the possible exception of spiritual enlightenment. And I just don't know anything about what it takes <laughs> to get there. <laughs> But just about everything else requires that you influence the behavior of yourself or some other person. And interpersonal influence is all that we had to survive when we were tiny, when we were born. We influence other people to take care of us, help us live. And it's how we have managed as a human species to survive and thrive and span the world as we have. We just, for some reason, haven't always, and most of us have never appreciated that what it takes to make our dreams come true is to understand how to move other people and to then go and put that knowledge into practice. And when we don't do that, then we're leaving power in the hands of the power-hungry people who do do that. Another uh, clip that I want to highlight is uh, my conversation with Rob Willer. So Rob is someone, uh, he's a sociologist at Stanford. Um, He and I do similar kinds of research in the domain of moral communication. And so I've known about Rob for a while. We've known each other. I tried to get him on the show, I think, within the first few months of the show being uh, running, but it was mid-pandemic and, you know, people's schedules were unpredictable. So he couldn't commit to it at the time. So I was excited. He actually reached out to me uh, over the summer to say that, you know, hey, my lab came out with this um, kind of big new project. And I remember you sort of (laughs) I had to punt on your last invitation to be on the show. Maybe I could come on uh, and talk about this new project. And so I was very excited. He was already on my list of someone to try to reach out to again. And so we got we got it set up. Uh, and his lab had just come out with this really, you know, big study. They call it a mega study about trying to change the, the approach that the public has to democracy um, in an age where people's commitments to democracy may seem to be eroding. Um, anyhow, you, you hear more about it in the clip, but I'm uh, excited. This is sort of the uh, return to the podcast after the summer science communication series. And so here is, um, let me see, uh, September 26th, 2022, episode 64, Saving Democracy with Rob Willer. Tell me about how we have saved democracy. Right? <laughs> you, you guys did it. <laughs> Sadly, uh, no. yeah, so, we've not. <laughs> yeah, so this big study. So it's a, a mega study, which sort of, we now have a handful of those in the field. What is it? What is it that makes this a unique approach to f- tackling this problem? Sure. Well, just as, as background, in a nutshell, what we did was we were interested in ways to successfully treat or effectively treat uh partisan animosity, anti-democratic attitudes, and support for partisan violence in the American mass public, specifically amongst partisans who, in this paradigm for thinking about this, are are the biggest concern um, and do show the highest levels of all these things. And so what we did was we were, you know, usually what we do in our lab and like in most labs is we think, oh, do we have a good idea for this? We We find that one idea, we go out and test it, try to make a case for it or abandon it if it's not good or if the results are unreliable and, you know, rinse and repeat for, you know, years and years and years. Uh, But for this, we were like, well, what if we try to take a really different approach and try to find out what are all the best ideas that we can find uh, for treating these outcomes, these problematic outcomes? And so what we did was we put out a call on social media and said, you know, 
come one, come all, you know, submit your interventions uh, that can reduce these outcomes amongst American partisans. And the big constraint is it has to be something we can put in an online survey experiment, which is a pretty big constraint. So it can't be face-to-face interaction. It can't be something long-term. It has to be something that we specified could be experienced somehow by experimental participants in under eight minutes in a survey experiment. So that still left a lot of room for diverse submissions. We got videos, audio, chatbots. There was one guided meditation. There were others that had people you know, write essays on certain topics and so on and so on. So uh, a whole bunch of different approaches to designing interventions that reflected also a great diversity of strategies from invoking common identities to correcting misperceptions about rival partisans to developing, you know, cross-partisan social class consciousness. You know, people had a lot of ideas. We got actually too many ideas. We got way more submissions than we had uh, planned for. We got 252 submissions from 400 submitters in 17 countries. You know, we tried really hard to make this project accessible to non-academics and we held workshops and paired people with academics who were interested in working with non-academics, trying to get those ideas from outside of academia into the the study. Uh, And then we selected the 25 ideas we found most promising from among the 250 and tested them in in a very large experiment with 32,000 participants. And uh, sorry, it's a long, long Mm buildup to so, so what do you find? If you, I mean, with all of these data, that you could probably talk forever about what you found, and uh, it probably is the longest supplement I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, yeah, we got a little crazy <laughs> on the supplemental a material. A lot of extra tables. Yeah. Um, so, if you are to give sort of the overview of like to you, like what ultimately do you take away from this enormous effort? Wow. Yeah. There's so much, uh, and and that's been really the trouble for us is that it is very hard to distill the insights down to just a a small number of insights. So I'm going to try to be as parsimonious as I can here. Um, So first of all, for democratic attitudes, I would say, you know, like anti-democratic attitudes, like improving these, uh, including support for partisan violence. I guess I would highlight three strategies. I don't know how parsimonious this is. Uh, Correcting meta perceptions turns out to be really effective. Um, Second, uh, elite cues turns out to be really effective. Um, so presenting people with, you know, leaders from their party that are saying, do, do this, do that, you know, like you, uh, you know, should not be violent towards rival partisans. You should defend democratic principles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then a third would be common identities, you know, like building common identities that connect people across party lines. Um, now, having said that, I kind of want to add a fourth, um, which is one of the most effective interventions that we tested was something we called democratic fear, which was a short video that was created by some political scientists here at Stanford, Katie Clayton and, and Mike Toms. And it showed scenes of democratic collapse in uh, settings like um Turkey and Venezuela, you know, civic unrest, police repression in the streets, you know, really underscored how bad things can get if democracy really, really falls apart. And then it culminated with scenes of the January 6th Capitol riot or whatever we call it. And, um, 
really made it tangible that it's like, well, no, this could actually happen here that, you know, don't take for granted the democratic stability we've enjoyed for a century and a half. Like, you know, things can fall apart and when they do, it's really bad. And so that, that was also uh, a powerful intervention that had a lot of positive effects. And, um, in fact, if you were just specifically looking at the support for undemocratic candidates variable, which may be the most important one, because that's, that's the one where, the public plays a role, you know, where public opinion really matters for democratic backsliding. It's like, well, are you going to elect the people that are backsliding the most? Uh, the two interventions that were that made the biggest difference were correcting misperceptions of the democratic views of rival partisans, and then this video that underscored the uh, the risks associated with democratic collapse. So it's basically like the other side is not dying to destroy democracy so you don't necessarily need to yourself and then also if if hmm. if both sides defect here uh, and we wind up with democratic collapse it could get, it could get really really bad okay the, the final clip of a just kind of standard opinion science interview that i want to share is a more recent one this one is on the topic of intellectual humility um and i think in this best of episode. This is the only one that it was an in-person interview, but I've been doing more of those lately as it's more and more possible. Um, and I'm really enjoying them. The, the sort of tone and the feel, they're a lot more relaxed and conversational. Um, in, I mean, both because <laughs> the people that I'm generally talking to, I already know uh, a little bit, but also just the nature of an in-person conversation is different than one that happens over the internet. So this is a conversation with a new colleague of mine at the university where I work, Ball State University. Uh, her name is Tennille Porter. And she studies intellectual humility. So I, I, I met her, got to know her when she arrived on campus, and I thought, you know, I would, it would be great. <laughs> It'd be very cool if you could uh, come on the podcast and talk about this. So we set up a time, and we set up the microphones, and got to it. And so it's a very kind of philosophical and open and uh, winding conversation about what I think is an important idea within opinion science, which is intellectual humility, or acknowledging the limits of your own knowledge. So here is a quick clip from my conversation with Tennille Porter that aired December 5th, 2022, in episode 68, Intellectual Humility. When is it appropriate to have less intellectual humility? I mean, is it appropriate to have less intellectual humility about the safety and viability of the COVID vaccines? What's the, you know, that's an interesting question because we have real data that speaks to the safety of these vaccines that can be brought to bear. And so especially I think when we get into talking about domain-specific intellectual humility – and we're thinking about this as a virtue, which means it needs to be appropriately calibrated to the situation and the evidence at hand. Um, you know, we can hold open the possibility that having really high specific intellectual humility about all beliefs may not be virtuous mm -hmm. and may not be a good thing. And teasing apart what are the contexts or what are the conditions that make specific intellectual humility, virtuous versus not, is work that still needs to be done. It's sort of, I've been reading a lot about um, climate change denial campaigns and the sort of rhetoric that's been used therein. Right. And a lot of this like presenting, you know, going back to tobacco lobbyists and tobacco companies many years ago, where they go, our only job is to keep the debate alive, to constantly cast doubts and go, hey, 
we haven't actually proven this yet. And in fact, many of those same folks who were in these tobacco campaigns ended up being heavy hitters in, you know, questioning global warming and acid rain and all these sorts of things. And the through line is this idea of they desperately want to present issues as unresolved, right? mm. which it kind of feels like the intellectual humility approach to go, mm-hmm. ah, we'll never, ever truly know the right That's answer. Right. But you go, well, maybe at a certain point, we ought to close the book <laughs> on some of these things and go, ah, ought we present this as such an open debate? Or is that actually misleading? Right? And we kind of, to your point, maybe say, this is a case where we're not completely shutting the door. Like, hey, we could still be wrong, but maybe we'll move on to other domains where we can explore the questions <laughs> openly in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Yeah, that is <laughs> what I'm thinking. I, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. I'm working with a philosopher, Oded Zapori, to try to kind of come up with these criteria. I mean, we see these claims to humility sometimes, to intellectual humility. Think about the election denial is one of them, the nicotine Mm -hmm. (laughs) trials being another, very intentionally sowing doubt. But, um, you know, one thing I think that characterizes election denialism is that folks on denying the the election results aren't willing to question the fallibility of their own denial. And so that becomes a kind of interesting thing to play with as we, as a public, are having to (laughs) sort through a mess of so much information and, you know, trying to make sense of it all, needing to make sense of it all. It's like thinking about intellectual humility for me, but not for thee, or the other way around, (laughs) intellectual (laughs) humility for thee, but not for me. And I think that's just a big red flag showing us that that's not authentic, virtuous intellectual humility. When you're asking other people to have it, when you're saying, no, no, we'll never know, but you seem to have already come to the conclusion yourself with some degree of like extreme certainty, that seems disingenuous to me. And I guess the other part I wanted to this that what you said made me think of is that I think it is important to uh, to maybe always hold open that centimeter of a chance that we could overturn what we already know because we do make new discoveries and part of intellectual humility is being open to overturn knowledge. There was a time when we thought that the earth was flat. There was a time when that was the prevailing science of the day at a time when we thought that all of the planets revolved around the earth. I mean, there are moments when we take great leaps forward and have to paradigm shift and disregard what we thought was true. Intellectual humility allows us to do that. Um, but we have to be very careful about it because I don't think that it's virtuous or helpful to be living in extreme doubt about matters on which our current gold standard evidence is suggesting that this is the current answer. So I I got to talk to a bunch of incredible people for the podcast this year, as I do every year. This show uh, continues to plod along. Um, But one thing I was really proud of this year is um, I, I got a lot more creative with the opening of the show. 
if you're a new listener to Opinion Science, the standard format is there's about five minutes in the beginning where I sort of um, draw upon examples in the world or talk about some related idea. That segues into my conversation with that episode's kind of core guest. Um, and, you know, sometimes, <laughs> I'll be honest, sometimes I kind of phone those in uh, and do a pretty cursory like, hey, there's this thing in the world called X and here it is. Um, but sometimes I really spend almost as much time on those openers as I do anything else. Um, and so I want to play three examples from this year of um, those sort of five minute openers to the podcast that I, I still am proud of and I think are cool and um, are worth listening to in their own right. The first one is from the introduction to my conversation with David McCraney, who, as I mentioned earlier uh, in this Best of episode, he, he wrote this book called How Minds Change. And so I interviewed him for the podcast about the book. But the impetus for David writing this book was seeing the shift in public opinion around same-sex marriage and how quickly it had happened and how that betrayed his sense of how public opinion changes in the world. And as it happens, a paper had just come out that kind of talks about this phenomenon of our miscalibration with the realities of public opinion change, right? When we think about how society is changing in their views and values, we're not actually locked into the reality. We have our own perception of social change, but it it may not actually map onto what the reality is. So anyhow, um, the the author of this paper, the lead author of that paper was Adam Mastriani. He's a postdoc at Columbia. And it was great. I got to, <laughs> I sort of, it was truly like, I had the idea, oh, I have to record this thing for the podcast. I email him. He responds right away. I think maybe we talked later that day um, so that I could get this thing out. And it was great. He, he was a very uh, wonderful to talk to. I, I saw him, <laughs> sat next to him at lunch uh, at a conference a little while later. Um, and and he has very cool research. Uh, he gave a great talk at, at the conference that I just mentioned. So anyhow, um, here is the opener to my uh, episode with David McCraney that features the findings of Adam Mastriani and his research team. I think like probably many projects in science, this started out of spite that uh, <laughs> for some reason, I've just always been bothered when people are like, oh yeah, things are so different now than they used to be. And I was like, well, how do you know? Um, and so and so for me, this is essentially vanquishing in uh, in debate all the people who ever said, used to be this way and now it's this way. <laughs> and now I just will email them the paper. Yeah. <laughs> That's Adam Mastriani. He's a postdoctoral scholar at Columbia Business School. And in some of his recent research, he's been looking at how much public opinion in the United States has changed over time. The first thing I did was take advantage of a bunch of work that other people did over decades. So like Pew and Gallup and the American National Election Studies, the General Social Survey, have truly been doing God's work in asking the same questions year after year. Like this, I think, is precious, precious data, because once the past is the past like we we can't go back and ask the questions anymore so he compiled a big set of data on actual public opinion on dozens of issues like climate change racism gender roles abortion smoking and for each of those issues you can plot out the changes over time in the average opinions of actual american people but that's only the beginning because what he's really interested in is not necessarily how opinions have changed but in how much everyday americans think public opinion has changed. And then we got a big nationally representative sample of people. 
and showed them verbatim the questions that have been asked over the years. Like, for example, since 1978, polls have been asking people whether they would vote for a woman as president of the United States. And so Adam would show people this exact question and ask, what do you think was the typical opinion back in 1978? And what do you think the typical opinion was by 2010? So he can get a snapshot of how public opinion has actually changed over time when it comes to more than 50 issues, and how much people think opinion has changed. And when the data were in, it was clear... People really don't know how public opinion has changed in roughly the past 50 years. And that's not just to say that people are inaccurate, meaning that you know their guesses are all over the place, but they're also biased. So even if you average everybody's guesses, that average uh, converges onto an answer that is the incorrect answer. So to our example, people thought that in 1978, only 32% of Americans would say they'd vote for a female president, and that by 2010, that figure would have increased to around 70%. But in reality, 74% of Americans said they'd vote for a woman in 1978. And 96% of people in 2010 said that they would. People just had no idea that this is what opinions looked like between the past and the present. And like Adam just said, some of people's guesses are just pure error, just randomly throwing darts and missing the bullseye. When it comes to people's beliefs about how much opinions have changed over time, they're off by about 22 points on a 100-point scale, which I think is quite a bit, but obviously it's up to you whether you think that's a lot or not. But as the overall trends show, there's also something systematic about how wrong people are. On a majority of attitudes, people overestimate the amount of change. They get the direction right, but they think there's been more change than there really has. So yes, acceptance for a female presidential candidate has increased over time, but it's nothing like the story of massive change that people are imagining. And by the way, there are other issues where there actually has been a lot of change, but people don't quite realize it, like same-sex marriage. There was a monumental shift in acceptance between 1988 and 2018, but people underestimate how big a shift that was. And then there are issues where people got the direction of change entirely wrong. Like gun control. On average, people think that support for gun control has increased over the last 30 years. When in reality, support has been going down. And there seems to be some logic behind all of this, which is that it seems as though people's view of the world is that opinions have been getting more liberal, more open to racial and gender diversity, more supportive of gun control. But this march from a super conservative past to a more progressive present doesn't quite map the reality. And it's not that people are overshooting how progressive the country has gotten. It's that they, they don't appreciate how liberal the past already was. People have a stereotype that the past is more conservative than it actually was. And so they underestimate how liberal the past was by a lot. They underestimate how liberal the present is by a little bit. And if you put those things together, people overestimate how much of a liberal shift there's been. I think this matters a lot because these beliefs about how opinions have changed over time, I think, form part of our stories that make sense of why things are the way they are and how they could be different or how they should be different. And so, for instance, one of the attitudes that really surprised me was on these feeling thermometers, the, the question is, how warm do you feel toward black Americans? And answers to that question have not meaningfully changed since 1964. 
And knowing that, I think it really complicates your story of like, well, how did racism play out over the last generation in the U.S.? Uh, if you th if you think the story was white people hated black people and now they don't anymore, that's not borne out by the data. But obviously there is some difference, right? We don't live in 1964 anymore. The material conditions are different. So why did that happen if it didn't happen by some change in antipathy? I mean, psychologists, I think, have known this for a long time, that racism isn't just antipathy, that there's, uh, there's all kinds of other bundle of attitudes in there. But I think for regular people, thinking about the story of our country, um, uh, I think that story changes when you see how these attitudes have changed over time. That's one reason why I think it matters. All right, the, the next opener is, I, I don't know, I, I still think about this. <laughs> I was reading this book um, on, you know, the, the nature of democracy and public opinion and, and the role of public opinion in democracy. And in it, there was uh, this reference to an old radio show from the 30s. And this, this radio show that was really intent on trying to change public opinion about what are essentially social prejudices and the name of the show was Americans All, Immigrants All. This was a, a big campaign that was really trying to chip away at people's prejudices toward all manner of social groups in the United States. And it really just, it got me thinking. It was just like a very interesting idea. And I was really captivated by the the history of, of how, how this program came about and attempts to test its efficacy. And I was trying, I was almost thinking about making a full episode about uh, this radio show. And then it occurred to me that... Um, I had an episode coming out with uh, an interview with my friend Suhad Marar, who does work on the use of media and entertainment to change prejudices and pursue social change and chip away at stereotypes. And I thought, oh, what a natural pairing <laughs> this is with one another. And so I really went down the rabbit hole that I found the archives of this old radio show on WNYC's website, listened to lots and lots and lots of those old episodes <laughs> of the show, and pieced together this uh, little summary of where this radio show came from and what it meant at the time. The American story, or like the story of modern America and its inhabitants, is an immigrant story. People coming to this land in waves from all over the world in search of an opportunity and a better life. For years after the United States were established, immigrants came with relatively little oversight. But several years after World War I, in 1923, when Calvin Coolidge first addressed the country as its president, he said, America must be kept American. For this purpose, it is necessary to continue a policy of restricted immigration. And in 1924, Congress passed the Johnson-Reed Act, which severely restricted immigration. Then in 1929, the stock market crashed, throwing the country into turmoil. And as political scientist Susan Herbst writes about this time, as is often the case with racism, long-held discriminatory attitudes toward immigrants and their children were rekindled as economic hardship brought out the worst in many. But during this time of anti-immigrant prejudice and questions about what it means to be a true American, a bold radio program burst through the fog. From November 1938 until May 1939, during the coveted Sunday afternoon time slot, 
the CBS network aired a 26-part series called Americans All, Immigrants All. According to a printed booklet that you could get by writing to the U.S. Office of Education, send in your request for the free booklet today. Americans All, Immigrants All was designed to promote a more appreciative understanding of our growing American culture through the dramatization of the contributions made by the many groups which are part of it. The episodes featured entertaining and informative peeks into the experiences of the Irish immigrant, Germans in the United States, the Scandinavians and the Finns, Greeks, Turks and Syrians, Slavs in the United States, Orientals, the French-speaking people and the Netherlanders, Italians in America. Also, even though it's kind of awkwardly shoehorned in there, the series also features an episode focused on African Americans. Today we bring you the story of one immigrant who did not come of his own free will, the Negro. Brought here as slaves for nearly 200 years, emancipated only 75 years ago, the Negroes were and are a challenge to democracy and an important part of our economic and social development. These episodes feature brief history lessons, short radio dramas where native-born Americans meet immigrants and realize their assumptions about them were wrong, and examples of immigrants who have accomplished great things. The series was a concerted effort to counter anti-immigrant attitudes, driven in large part by the efforts of a teacher from New Jersey, Rachel Davis Dubois. She was a passionate social activist, advocating for immigrants and minorities, and in the 1930s, she connected with John Studebaker, who had been appointed as U.S. Commissioner of Education and who led the Federal Radio Education Committee. Together, they conceived of a radio program that would reach the masses and educate them on the struggles of immigrants in order to increase tolerance. They first went to NBC, who rejected it, fearing that it would be unpopular and offensive to celebrate immigrants' contributions to the United States, as though they might be even more important than those of white people born here. And it wasn't perfectly smooth sailing once CBS signed on either. The producers originally wanted to call the series Immigrants All, but that got changed to Immigrants All, Americans All, to emphasize that this wasn't just about advocating for immigrants, it was about everybody's role. But then the title got changed yet again to Americans All, Immigrants All, because after all, when the title would get abbreviated in radio listings, Americans All just has a better ring to it than Immigrants All, don't you think? Nevertheless, I think it's pretty remarkable that we had a program like this in the 1930s, complete with live orchestral music, a professional host, and scripts read by actors, all with this progressive goal to address intolerance. And sure, when you listen now, it, it probably doesn't pass all the criteria for politically correct progressive advocacy. But to their credit, they had consultants from immigrant rights agencies give feedback on scripts and flag potentially problematic content. So, did Americans All, Immigrants All change public opinion? Well, that's hard to know. Nobody was really testing the effects at the time, and now, more than 80 years later, it's hard to find a clear record, but we have some indications that it may have made a difference. Remember, I mentioned that you could write in to request a booklet based on the program? Well, in 1941, for her master's thesis, one graduate student poured over 81,000 such requests. And sure, most of them just said, like, can I please have this booklet? But some of them came with additional comments, and she seemed to find that many Americans were moved by the radio series, some even expressing that they wished everyone in the country would be required to listen to it. Then again, 
these may just be the very people who never had strong anti-immigrant attitudes to begin with. So we're left with a question. Can infotainment, like Americans All, Immigrants All, and the way various media portray people from different social groups, can it really break through and change hearts and minds? Perhaps even by conveying that respect and tolerance are the norm. The last opener that I want to play for you is from episode 63, which featured my interview with G. Elliot Morris, who's a data journalist for The Economist. Um, over the summer, he came out with this book called Strength in Numbers, How Polls Work and Why We Need Them. Really great book. Really, uh, someone that I had wanted to talk to for the show for a long time because he does cool stuff in the world of polling and election forecasting. Um, and it was that latter thing that really kind of captured <laughs> my intrigue for this opener was forecasting elections. and the flack we give pollsters for calling the election incorrectly, air quotes, liberally applied to incorrectly. Um, you can listen to the interview with Elliot to, to learn more about what why I would air quote that. Um, but it made me think about TV meteorologists, right, and the disdain <laughs> that people have for what is ultimately like an incredible miracle that we can know tomorrow what the weather is going to be. Like, Beyond baseline, like probably, I guess, like today, <laughs> but but to be able to have any sense of what's going to happen is is incredible. And so um, through a series of friends, I was able to connect with Andrew Kozak, who at the time was the meteorologist for Spectrum News One in the city where I live, Columbus, Ohio. He he is now uh, off. I think he's in Pittsburgh now. Um, he's, he left <laughs> the city shortly after I talked to him. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Um but he was – I really enjoyed talking with him. Uh, I've never talked to a meteorologist before, I don't think. Um, and so, you know, we talked a lot about, like, how he got into it and what these models that they use um, uh, apply to, to forecast the weather. Anyhow, my, my real interest – honestly, what I wanted <laughs> – what I wanted was to find a meteorologist with a story – about someone confronting them about forecasting the election uh, as forecasting the weather incorrectly. I wanted to find someone who had like some like funny story. I I think in retrospect, I realize why he wouldn't want to tell a story <laughs> like that, even if it actually uh, had happened to him. But he had a, just a very thoughtful approach to thinking about what the weather is, what it means to forecast it, how we forecast it. Um, the, the role of probability in communicating those forecasts. Um, so anyhow, to, to wrap up these openers that I produced for the show this year, um, here is uh, a little glimpse into the world of forecasting the weather featuring Andrew Kozak. So it's just a lot of it's trial and error. And, you know, this is the most imperfect science out there. We're getting better. Um, but essentially, we're trying to predict the future. And that creates a lot of um, room for room for error. It's the one thing you can talk to almost anyone about. Some weather we're having, huh? D did you hear it's supposed to snow again this weekend? And I think we often take it as a given that we'll know what the weather's going to be like throughout the week. We make all sorts of plans based on the oracle of the weather forecast. But do we really understand how these things work? I talked to someone who knows. My name is Andrew Kozak, and I am a TV meteorologist who has been doing it just about 18 years. 
When I was about four years old, we lived in a two-family house. My grandmother lived downstairs, and she had one of those old Zenith TVs that was like a piece of furniture, and VCR hooked up and put in the Wizard of Oz. And I don't know, I once the color kicked in, once she opened the door and she was in Munchkin Land, I really didn't care about the rest of the movie. It was never a favorite movie of mine. I know a lot of people love it, but to me, it was that tornado part in the beginning, just because it was explained to me that, look, this is a fantasy movie, but there are actual tornadoes, things like that happen. And it just sparked my interest. Oh my God, this is something that's in such a crazy fantasy movie, actually real. So Andrew majored in meteorology in college and interned at a TV station in New York City. And since then, he has forecasted the weather all over the place, including Kansas City, Austin, Memphis, Tulsa. And now he's on Spectrum News 1, where I live, in Columbus, Ohio. Anyhow, I wanted to know, how do you predict the weather? On a daily basis, what I usually do is, you know, get up with my cup of coffee. And instead of everybody reads the news or everybody does a certain, you know, what I do is I start looking at models and data and the latest stuff that comes out. While you're sleeping, there's new data that comes out. I mean, it's just constantly crunching. So I'm looking at some weather models. I'm looking at the overall uh, even weather discussion that the National Weather Service puts out just to see, you know, these guys have been working overnight just to see what we're seeing, especially if there's a, a busy period of weather coming up. And in terms of what these models can account for, as I understand it, there are at least three components. One is just like, what's the weather right now? I call it now casting. What it is now is done by weather balloons and observational data. And then we move into more complicated computations. The mixture of the computer model's algorithm, looking at satellite data, looking at a storm in the Pacific Northwest and calculating how long it's going to take to get to Columbus, Ohio, where I am, or New York. And then all of this gets stacked up against the historical data. In other words, if it's May, it is very unlikely that it's going to snow in Florida, right? The historical data show that that almost never, ever, ever happens. So that's going to affect the predictions that you make. And the result of all those computer programs, of course, is a perfect description of the weather you will experience for the next five to seven days, right? Yeah, n not so much. <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times I've heard my dad say, I thought it was supposed to be nice out today. Go to YouTube videos about weather forecasting and you'll see plenty of people commenting, I wish I could be wrong half the time and still have a job. But my favorite is an episode of the TV show Curb Your Enthusiasm, where Larry David concocts a grand conspiracy that even when the weather will be great, his local weatherman says it's going to rain just so he can have the golf course to himself. It's, it's happened weather. before, weatherman. You know it. And you know what? The challenge is just that weather is complicated. It's the product of a bunch of factors coming together. Plugging all of these factors into a predictive model cannot get us to certainty, but it can get us to probabilities with various margins of error. And as psychologists know well, people are not great at thinking probabilistically. We're told there's a 70% chance of rain, but we hear that as it's going to rain. But really, it means that 70% of the time, when the weather conditions are as they are now, it has ended up raining. Not only that, but these forecasts are for a given region, a whole plot of geography that gets the same prediction. Put it all together, and technically, here's what that forecast means. 70% chance of rain means that there is a 70% chance that your area that I'm forecasting for, 
the grid is going to get at least one one hundredth of an inch of precipitation. Is it perfect? No. Is it confusing? Probably a little bit. So let's say I'm just forecasting for Columbus. Uh, there is a 20% chance on day five that you will have rain. Now, if you, if by you, I mean you living on the north side and somebody on the south side's watching, well, that goes for them too. What it doesn't do is talk about pinpointing where, you know, exactly within that grid, it doesn't pinpoint where when we say 20%. That's where we come in and that's where we explain it. By explaining it, he means on TV. You might think the weather app on your phone tells you everything you need to know, but Andrew actually made a pretty compelling case to me that the TV meteorologist still plays an important role. These are folks who can look at these simple brute force forecasting percentages from the official models and convey context to viewers, provide the geographic nuance for what the predictions mean, give a sense of how these weather patterns will move through your area, remind us what a probability even is. But still, it's an uphill battle. In our weather community, you know, we have private groups for TV meteorologists, and we always joke, well, what about at my house? Because whenever we do live streaming or live uh, tornado coverage, there'll always be, well, what about you know, what about my house? I remember when I when I lived in Wichita, Kansas, which is smack in the middle of Tornado Alley, and we were forecasting that day for tornadoes. And I remember uh, somebody had wrote to the station and said, "Well, I live on the corner of Twenty First and Rock. <laughs> do you do you think that?" And, and it's like, man, if I could tell you that with with certainty that you're going to get a tornado or not going to get a tornado at at your house, I'm I, I need to package this, sell it, <laughs> make millions because. Nobody can do that. Um, so the perception is if it's not happening to me, it didn't happen. And that's one of the biggest hurdles I think we as meteorologists have. And it puts us in a very unique position because, yeah, we work for news, but we are so different than the reporters and the anchors in what we do. They're, they're out there talking about facts, talking about situations that have happened. They're at meetings for city events or school boards. They're sometimes at crime scenes. They're at all different things that are going on that affect everybody. But they're rooted in video of what's going on, facts about what's going on, interviews with people. With us, it's predicting the future. And nobody can do that with a 100% certainty in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so perception is a is a very big uh, hurdle and challenge, I think, for us. Uh, and it's been that way for since the birth of television weather. All right, for for the last part of this best of episode, I need to cue some music here. brings me back this 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 <laughs> music puts me straight back into this summer when i was spending so much time producing a series of episodes of the show on science communication so just to backpedal a little bit a little bit of background on where this came from i had found in doing this podcast and other things that i like to do uh, a real affinity for people who also do science communication work i i found the whole world really interesting and i kept wanting to to talk to these people, to talk to people who do this work and do it so well and pick their brain and learn more from them. But it never quite fit 
the theme of opinion science. And so I did a couple opinion science episodes about science communication, but it was never, it didn't, it didn't quite feel right. So I thought, you know, let, you know what, <laughs> let, let me, let's just do it. We're going to do it. Let's just do it and call it a special series. And so I spent quite a bit of time lining up interviews with folks who do science communication work from all sorts of different perspectives, authors of best-selling books, producers of popular radio, um, producers of video, uh, tick, people who share uh, social science on TikTok, um, uh, YouTube creators, everybody, everybody I could think of, uh, I was trying to, to line up for the series. And we ended up with 13 episodes that uh, aired weekly over the summer on science communication. And I just want to play two of them. And they're the first two in the series. Um, the first episode of the series was with Joss Fong, who uh, produces a bunch of videos for Vox. Uh, you can find them on YouTube. Um, and they're incredible. It's They're so good. <laughs> uh, after I talked to her, I, another of these Vox uh, videos came out, and I saw it, and I was like, oh, man, they're, they're doing it again. And then right at the end, it said her name, Joss Fong. And I ah, of course. <laughs> of course, uh, that makes so much sense. Anyhow, um, I had seen, I mentioned earlier, Rob Willer, who we talked to uh, for the show. He was in one of these videos that that Joss produced, and uh, it was it was just so good. <laughs> it was just it was just such a good uh, example of data journalism, science journalism, uh, telling a story, but also communicating important ideas about public opinion. Um, and so I was so excited when when she agreed to talk uh, for the series and was super wonderful and pleasant and, and all the other things uh, that you can say nice about a person. And so I just want to play a quick clip of a part of that conversation that I continue to think about. It really is burrowed into my brain when I think about the role of telling stories in science communication. So here is a, a little taste of the first episode of my SciComm series featuring Joss Fong. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I clearly have like unresolved ideas about how to bring anecdotes into explainer journalism when the whole point is that we're talking about context and not individuals here. Um, the thing that I have come to realize over the years is that people are almost always going to remember individuals and individual stories more than they remember the million facts that we give them that flesh out the context. And so I hope that by bringing in those stories, some of the memorability of them can kind of attach itself to the information that I was hoping to deliver. But it's equally as possible that instead of remembering the facts, they are remembering the emotion of that story. Um, I would love if someone did some research on how people process journalism like this, because I have, I have no idea what sticks, you know, what people what makes people uh, keep paying attention and then, you know, maybe a, a week or two down the line, what they actually remember from what they watched. Cause it's, it's really hard for me to say. Yeah. In, in the persuasion world, there is some work on like narrative persuasion and sort of this notion that like, Oh, through a story, you will kind of come to, you know, adopt some perspective that you hadn't had before. So there is some sense that like the emotionality of a message resonates or the, the, you know, being able to identify with the character resonates. But I, I think I'm dwelling on this idea a little bit just because the advice is often like, okay, you have your science, that's fine. <laughs> but like, first you got to uh, present like an anecdote that gets mm -hmm. people on board and then present the science. And it's never clear to me, like how essential truly is that 
And also mm-hmm. kind of to your point, like, you know, what, what is it if, if people come away and all they remember is the story, this happens when I teach and I, I ask on a test, like, Hey, describe this. And they tell, they kind of regurgitate the story that they heard. And I'm like, well, that's not, <laughs> that's not mm-hmm. really the, the study that we talked about. Like, that's what I wanted you to remember. But you remember right. like this one very specific case, which is, you know, it's not bulletproof, right? Like it's an example, but mm-hmm. you can't deploy that as evidence for the point that we're making because you can attack it from too many perspectives. So I, I don't know. I, I was I was curious in that it seemed like something that you were in the midst of <laughs> figuring out yeah. what its relevance was. So I yeah, just wanted to push you on it. Yeah, and it gets back to what you mentioned before, which is that I've always been uncomfortable with the term storyteller, which is is a way that some journalists describe themselves. Um, and it gets to what are the different strengths of explanatory journalism versus narrative journalism versus news journalism? And, you know, how you evaluate good narrative journalism is whether the story grips you and how you evaluate, you know, good news is whether they are providing more information that didn't exist in the world. For explanatory journalism, you know, it's it's much more difficult to evaluate because it essentially requires a great deal of expertise to know whether any given uh, piece, any given explainer is doing a good job providing the context for the story. And so I, I, I'm still like very dedicated to making sure that that's the mission and that's the mission of the news organization that I work for. But it's very difficult to avoid the fact that in my own consumption, I see myself responding to stories and responding to narratives, not necessarily seeking out explanations. It's like this this very human thing that's very difficult to avoid, and I still haven't quite resolved how it intersects with what I do and what I should be doing. Um, but I don't think it's essential, and I I think you're right that it's potentially distracting from the main point. So I could easily see someone remembering from my video that there was this radio host in Tennessee and, you know, he was an anti, he was skeptical of the vaccine and then he died um, and not remember the fact that polarization on the vaccine started in May 2020 or before. And, And that's the point of the piece is that our political leaders were very short sighted in the early, early stages of the pandemic. And clearly they they could not have predicted that we would end up here two years later with a million dead Americans, but it's something we could learn for next time. If, you know, if we pay attention to the role that political cues and partisan cues play in setting people, cementing people in these camps in a way that becomes very difficult to erase later on. I don't know. Um, that that was the point of the piece, but I could see how you know putting in emotional stories might actually make that harder to take away. Okay, and then finally, another person I was again so excited <laughs> agreed to to talk with me for this science communication series is Meryl Horn, who's a producer at the podcast Science Versus. In a lot of ways, Science Versus years ago kind of planted a seed in my mind about doing something like opinion science. It sort of has morphed over time, but Science Versus is it's just a really great example of science journalism via audio. They they really just do an incredible job. Um, in fact, <laughs> it was, my, you know, 
after I'd been listening to the show for a couple of years, it was my sister who reached out to me and said, hey, have you ever heard of this Science Versus show? I really like it. And so after I talked to Meryl, I, I texted my sister and said, hey, you'll never guess, but <laughs> I just talked to one of the producers of that show that we both like. Um, so Meryl Horn is a, a former academic. So she was she got her PhD, I think, in neuroscience and then ended up uh, getting a job at Science Versus and has spent years there producing stuff for them. And uh, yeah, just another very fun conversation with someone who's really good at what they do and can comment very thoughtfully about the process of doing it. Um, and so here's a little look at my conversation with Meryl Horn in the second episode of the Science Communication Series. So I listened to an interview that you had done with the podcast you were involved with uh, as a student. Oh, yeah. Um, and at one point, the, the person asks you about the research you were doing in grad school, and you very quickly launch into a very easy to understand explanation of it, right? You're like, if you're a cell and you want to maintain a sense of balance, uh, and that was just what I wondered was like, is that kind of a mode that you were in at the time? Or was that really the product of sort of the practice of being in a science communication job to understand like, okay, I can't just fall into the jargon that I would have read in the papers, but I need to explain this in a more palatable way. It definitely took work to to do that. Like, I, I don't think that comes naturally for any scientist. You're so used to talking in jargon um, to other people who understand what you're talking about. And so I think it was only practicing, you know, doing this podcast that I had been flexing that muscle and then kind of realized that like, oh, for any other, I mean, even when you're in a conference or a lab meeting where people know what you're talking about, I think it's still more interesting <laughs> if you talk in a like in a human way. So I think now, yeah, now it, it was just like a matter of practicing it and um, yeah, finding new ways to to talk about science so that people really get it. Because I think it can be hard when you just launch into there's a cell and these are the receptors and the, you know, homeostasis. It's easier as a human to follow along with a story if there's a protagonist. And so even just that simple step of saying, like, imagine you are a cell, it seems like it's easier for humans who are, you know, who have been storytellers for thousands of years to kind of latch on to that if it becomes a story. Are, are there like deliberate moves that you make like that? What well, you just sort of <laughs> tipped your hand a little bit and like there's a protagonist, right? Like, is that a choice you make where you go, let's make this into a story with with characters? Or do you find that you just sort of are throwing spaghetti at the wall and then you sort of find the way that ends up sounding the most intuitive? Yeah, I think that's one of the tricks we use. Like whenever we're interviewing academics now, we tend to try to get them to say things from the perspective of like, imagine you're a protein, what are you doing? Or imagine I'm one of the participants in your study. What would you tell me when I'm walking into the lab? What am I going to be doing? Um, and it just slows things down a little bit. I guess it makes it more visual too, because they say, you know, like podcasting is the most visual medium. Like you really need to paint a picture for people to stay with you. And so it helps to get that's an, I guess just another trick is like getting lots of little visual details to help really explain either an experiment or, you know, a mechanism. Hmm. So, so you'll do some like coaching of the scientists that you're talking to, to kind of put them into that mode that's going to translate to radio. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully it doesn't feel too much like coaching, but we'll try to just ask questions in a way that makes them break out of their normal way of explaining it to other scientists and makes them think about 
yeah, how, like, would I explain this if I were a cell? Like, what would I be looking at? And analogies are another really common way to, to try to um, make something more just kind of intuitively understandable than just talking about the straight science itself. So, you know, using a lock and key instead of an antibody and a receptor, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and you, there's also the luxury of being able to pull just the moments where it all finally gels, right? Like in my experience of doing a little more long form versions of this, and you're sort of just kind of trying to be like, okay, let's try it again. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it, it just, it's harder to quite make that happen. Whereas if you're, if you can sort of like nudge someone and then they lock in and then you can just use that part, that's also a yeah. nice way to, to build a fuller story and also get the person themselves rather than you talk to the scientist and then you have to come back and then write the narration to basically say what they're trying to say. But it's like, do you think it's better to get that straight from the person themselves? Yeah. I mean, I think it's rare that we'll use, you know, like a whole paragraph or something of the scientists just straight talking. Usually we'll kind of jump in a lot and kind of help move it along. But um, even if it's just little things like if we I was talking to somebody yesterday about what this brain region, the nucleus accumbens does, and um, he gave like a couple just fun examples of like things that you might be doing that will trigger it. So he was listing off like like if you're eating some good food, bam, if you get five dollars, bam, like we'll, we'll probably just end up using that little bit and it'll be great because it's like easy. It's digestible. It's like interesting audio because he was saying like bam, bam, bam a lot, which is just fun to listen to. Um, and then we'll probably, in our own words, maybe say some one of the more complicated things like and in the study, they found that this brain region like lit up when the people were doing this activity like it's like i think yeah for some things it can be really hard to do that in the moment and for other things when you're just kind of making a list or saying something that's sort of more natural to say like a a human then we'll kind of pick and choose the the moments that you know we'll go into kind of maybe more detailed explanation versus using some fun you know flavor and color from from the interviewee and like any emotional reactions is great because that's what we want to get from the scientists is like what it felt like to actually be doing the work. Was it exciting when you got the results? That kind of storytelling that we have no idea, you know, how we would even say that. Okay, uh, that's it. That that That's everything I have to share with you. Thank you so much for listening to this best of. Um, you know, these are kind of weird to record because I'm just sort of rambling about <laughs> things. Uh, usually uh, the, this podcast is a little more tightly produced than this. Um but it's just a fun opportunity to, to think back about what 2022 was, what it meant, and what we're going to do for the future. So the plan is to keep on keeping on. There are new things in progress. Um, hopefully we'll do maybe a small abbreviated version of the science communication series this summer. We'll see. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. Um, still uh, working on uh, a cool series with the folks at Behavioral Grooves, uh, another behavioral science podcast on the history of behavioral economics. So hopefully, I think I said this last year that this was going to come out soon. This time, I think I mean it. That <laughs> uh, this is ever closer to actually coming out into the world. Thank you to everybody who supports the show. I mean, it's been really incredible to get feedback uh, from folks who listen regularly, use this in their classrooms. Uh, when I was going up for tenure earlier this year, I had to submit some evidence of impact. <laughs> so I was you know, collecting emails I've gotten from people saying that they play episodes of the show in their class. Um, 
indications from others that they're using this material, that it's reaching a global audience, people all around the world. I don't have the numbers up. Um, certainly many of the listeners of this show are in the United States or North America more generally. Um, but, but there are downloads coming from all over the place and it's really incredible, um, to, to see that. Um, I opened up the doors to um, contribute to the show financially, um, because it's not a, necessarily cheap thing to do <laughs> but i've been loving doing it and so so i've mostly been paying for for all the nitty-gritty bits of the show out of pocket but i opened up an opportunity to to contribute to opinion science and help with the the costs of of everything and i mean the response to that honestly has been super humbling uh and uh you know we're, we're not we're not raking in you know millions of dollars in a pledge drive but many of you uh, have reached out, folks that I know, and I'm super appreciative to, to you for contributing, and folks that I, I've never personally met before who, who listen to this show and find value in it. And just thank you so much for uh, for staying with me. <laughs> uh, however many episodes in, I think we just released episode 70. Um, that's a lot. It's a lot of stuff, uh, but but I love it. And uh, it's been a really incredible opportunity to meet so many people, both the people who have been on the show and people who I've met who listen to the show. Um, so yeah, so, so thank you for your support. Do what you can to spread the word if you know of anyone who might be interested in the show or you're connected in a social network of people who listen to podcasts and like science and thinking about big ideas. Uh, definitely send them uh, this direction. As for you, I mean, you know, hopefully you're subscribed to this thing by now. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Um, people listen to this show on like every podcast platform I've ever heard about <laughs> and and many of them uh, that I haven't heard about. Go to opinionsciencepodcast.com where you can find all of the episodes of the show um, as well as most of the episodes have full transcripts available for them. And there's also on all of those episode pages links to the guest's website if they have one, uh, links to things that we talk about. If there is a topic that comes up or some research that we talk about, some study that comes up, uh, there's always going to be a link to those. Um, and so, yeah, so you, you can find uh, all of that there. And, you know, I do want to note, uh, like I do every year, that I, I kind of hate picking episodes to feature in the best of because, like, there were so many good ones <laughs> this year. Uh, th there are, yeah. There's really not an episode that I couldn't have found a clip to put in this best of. So if you haven't listened to to some in 2022, definitely check those out. Um, some uh, some other episodes that come to mind are uh, my conversation with Chris Petsko about intersectional stereotypes. Um, I talked to Julia Minson about uh, receptiveness, which is a conversation that still has been sort of percolating through my mind ever since uh, I talked to her about that. Um, I talked to Robin Nappy about emotion, Linda Skitka about moral conviction, Mark Brandt about belief systems, and I'm, I'm just reading the episode list. Adam Hahn about uh, unconscious bias and whether it is unconscious and what it would mean for it to be unconscious. I really love that one. Efren Perez, Tom Holtgraves, um, and the Last one of the year also was very fun. It was uh, with uh, Tony Barnhart and my friend Eric Tate, who's a champion magician. Uh, and that episode was all about the psychology of magic and what it means for attention. So I I'm missing some, I know, looking at the list, but a lot of great stuff uh, in the past year and, and many more good things to come. 
But that's, I got to just stop talking, right? Like, because, I mean, in, in a week, there's going to be a new episode. This is a special, this is a bonus episode today. So I got I to gotta cut this off. Um, I'll see you back next week for a new episode of Opinion Science. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your support, for listening. If you're a new listener, thanks for joining us. And, and hopefully you stick around. Um, and, and that's all I've got. So until next time, let's go out with some of that uh, theme music from the, so, the science communication series from the summer. I don't know what it was. I just, those, the two tracks I found for that science communication series, I just, I still really like them. <laughs> so we'll go out on that and, uh, yeah, I'll see you around here soon for more opinion science. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.